know, I kind of wrestled with what should I title this sermon series, and I'm not sure where I've landed yet on that. Maybe one, a couple of ideas were the gospel according to Job. That would be a good one because it's true. I think another one would be Job and the wisdom of the cross because Job is ultimately a book about the wisdom of God and not of men. So that's just two, high, two titles we can kind of hang our hat on here over these next several weeks, the gospel according to Job and Job, the wisdom of the cross, as I pray that we'll see some of those truths revealed for us in God's word. So we're going to look at Job chapter 1 this morning. So begin, turn with me to Job. I think it will also be on your screen this morning, and we'll look at Job chapter 1, 1 through 22. This is God's word, beloved, for you. And I love how, you know, those books, you know, novels that we read just that have great opening sentences. I love the opening sentence of the book of Job. It's just so rich. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Isn't that a great sentence? What a great opening sentence. There were born to him, Job, seven sons, three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female doctors donkeys and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all of the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And I just side note there, what do you see how what a great pastor Job was to his family? That each day he would go before the Lord and pray for his kids. This is awesome. Okay. Sermon over. Verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But you, yeah, if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with Well, this is the first time that I've ever preached through the book of of Job, and likely, I haven't worked it all out yet, but 10 to 12-ish sermons on Job, but I know without a matter of fact, the more that I've studied Job, the more I've been camping out in Job now for many months, I could see that we could spend a whole lot of time on Job. As a matter of fact, this is just interesting, in the 17th century, a famous Scottish Presbyterian minister began a sermon series on the book of Job. His name was George Hutchinson. He preached 316 sermons on Job. Now, to top that off, about the same time in a congregation in London, a man, a Puritan by the name of Joseph Carroll, his successor was John Owen, who you might be more familiar with. Joseph Carroll began a series of expositions on the book of Job that took him 23 years to finish Now, to put that in perspective, imagine this. This morning, you are hearing the opening sermon on Job chapter 1 in this long series. And at the same time, you've had your daughter baptized while this opening sermon of Job begun that Sunday. She will be graduated from college by the time I finish this sermon series. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Or John Calvin John Calvin took the task of preaching through Job. He preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. In just under a period of six months, they met every day for worship. And he preached on Job in a period of about six months. So come on back. We'll start tomorrow. Everybody game for that? All right. But in all seriousness, I do want to embark on something a little less tenuous or ambitious. And so we're going to take, if you will, the 50,000-foot you know, plains eye view of the book of Job, and I hope that we'll be done by the end of July or so. Of course, I did what was just going to preach a, a four-part series on the book of John, and it took us almost a year, so, you know, you never know. We'll see. But I don't think it's going to be 23 years, so. But Job is, it's, if you've ever read Job, and I hope that you will, in fact, as a matter of fact, let me encourage you over the next, I mean, you can do this in a day. You could go home this afternoon and sit down in your comfortable chair, try to stay awake with a cup of coffee, and you could read through the book of Job literally in about 45 minutes time, 30 minutes if you're a fast reader, maybe an hour. For those of you who are less ambitious, let me encourage you to do this. Take two chapters a day on the book of Job, two chapters a day. If you do that two chapters a day each day, take you five minutes time, it will take you 21 days to read through the book of Job. So let me encourage you to read through Job 1 through 42 over the next days or hours or weeks so that we'll be afresh together on what we see and comprehend in the entire book of Job. So Job is an astonishing book. It's a captivating book, isn't it? it it's captivating. It's a bit difficult to read. You know, it's got all these mixed of, a mix of literary genres like prose, uh, certainly poetry. If you look from chapter 3 all the way almost to the end of the book, the epilogue of the book, it's almost all poetry. 
But what's so interesting about Job, Job is not its mix of literary genres, not its captivating story. I think what's most captivating about the book of Job is it asks the enduring question, why, doesn't it? God, why me? God, why my neighbor? Why my friend? Why my mother or my father? Why my son or my daughter? God, why is this happening to me? Lord, why right now in my life is this happening to me? God, why is this so severe that I'm going through? Why, why someone else? And so, we, you know, we've got these questions, and I know that there's not a single soul in this room here this morning at some point in your life, but at some level, you've likely asked that question of God, God, why? Why is this happening to me? Why, in some capacity in your life, you've asked that question, why? And of course, we know what happens when you ask those questions, those kind of questions, why? Really, you're asking those questions of God, aren't you? You're asking those questions of God and his nature and of his character. You're, you're asking, you know, you're asking those questions on what, based on whether or not what God has promised or not is going to come true. And in a sense, as C.S. Lewis put it, you, he wrote this famous essay called God in the Dock. In a, in, a, in a sense, when you're asking that question, why, you're putting God in the dock. That's an old legal term for where a defendant sits, the, a defendant sits who's on trial, the dock. So you you're, you're, in a sense, putting God in the dock. You're putting God on trial. And you're saying, God, why? Why is this happening to me? And you're putting God on trial. You're putting him in the dock. And for some, for you, he's being tried and he's been tested and he's found wanting. He's found lacking. And so the first two chapters of Job were given in this prologue. The prologue's an introduction. And this prologue... We're given this prologue for our benefit and for our blessing because you see in the beginning here in Job, Job certainly was aware of the sufferings that came his way, right? He understood. He certainly felt these tremendous losses that hit him. But Job wasn't familiar with what was going on in another sense around him. Job, for instance, doesn't know about the great encounter in heaven between Satan and God. The writer of Job and God's infinite wisdom, he puts that there for our benefit, doesn't he? We're given, in a sense, Job didn't see this, but we are given, in a sense, a glimpse behind the scenes, behind this grand curtain of God's providence. It's almost like that curtain is pulled back a little bit to allow us to glimpse into the haze and the mist of God's providences and his purposes of his control in this world, and we're just given a little teensy pink behind the scenes, if it will. And we meet three characters here in our opening prologue chapter here this morning. We meet Job. We meet the Satan, or the Satan. If you translate it literally, there's an article in front of it, the Satan. And then there is God. Now, we first meet Job. And I believe, there, boy, is there a ton of dialogue and argument and discussion about was Job a historical figure or not. I do believe that Job was an historical figure. Because Job is mentioned, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 14, it mentions, mentions two other historical figures, Daniel and Noah, along with Job. So Daniel, Daniel, Job, and Noah are mentioned all together in Ezekiel 14, stated as historical figures. Then besides the book of Ezekiel, where else do we find Job's name written in the New Testament? Bible quiz time. Anybody know? The book of James. You're right, whoever said it. Book of James, James chapter 5, verse 11, we see 
James mentions Job as an historical figure. So preliminarily, we have three Bible books that present Job as a real person and therefore, I believe, an historical figure. We've got Job itself testifying of him, and then we've got Ezekiel and James. Job likely lived during the time of Abraham. He likely lived a little bit before Abraham. He comes, as Job tells us, from a place called Uz, which is in the Arabian Desert. Chapter 1 tells us that Job is not an Israelite. He's a Gentile that really he is a representative of all of humanity. And no sooner is Job introduced to us that he's quickly described in four particular terms. Did you pick up on that at the beginning of chapter 1? How is Job described to us? He is a blameless man. He's upright. He fears God. And he turns away from evil. We're in fact, told that three times in Job chapter 1. We're told in verse 1 by the author of Job. Told it again in verse 8, and and this time in verse 8, who says that about Job? It's God himself who says that. And then if you uh, go to the second chapter in verse 3, we'll see that next week, it's repeated again. So Job is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. And I don't know about you, but that is quite a list of godly characteristics, isn't it? And the fact that uh, God says that about Job himself. If we had time, and we'll We really don't, but if we had time, we could explore this a little bit more. We could ask ourselves the question, what are the marks or what are the characteristics of godliness? How does God measure godliness? Well, you could know better than turn here and look at Job, right, and see his character, his life. What does God look for? You know, when you think of godliness, when you think of Christian maturity, when you think of growth in the Christian life, what do you think of? Well, blamelessness. Uprightness, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Those are great places to start. But the point here is to demonstrate, don't just be like Job. That's not the main point here. The point is to demonstrate that Job, the the author setting the stage, isn't he? To demonstrate that Job is a godly, godly man. In fact, apparently he was the godliest man on the face of the earth at this point. And so this brings us here to something. In fact, I think that there are probably... Few of us here in this room, maybe some of you, but few of us in this room would have trouble with the idea that ungodly men or ungodly women suffer. In fact, we might think that they should probably suffer a little bit more, right? Because culturally, we think, you know, gosh, that's the problem with our culture, that the ungodly are allowed to, or even encouraged to prosper over the expense of the godly. But here's the challenge of the book of Job. Here's what happens to this man, the unspeakable tragedy. It happens to a man who is incredibly godly, doesn't it? It happens to a man who's, in a sense, probably the godliest person on the face of the earth. And so that presents us an unavoidable question. It brings us the question of why. And and it, of course, will validate a plea that Job will make, a plea of innocence, that he doesn't deserve what has come to him. There's something wrong here with the distribution of suffering. Something wrong, and that something wrong, Job believes, is is something wrong with God himself. See, that's the conclusion we'll see that Job comes to. Now, some folks are going to take issue with the concept of Job's innocence or blamelessness. You read that and you think, you get hung up on that. But we're talking about a concept of legal innocence. It doesn't mean Job was perfect. It doesn't mean Job was sinless like Jesus. The only 
ever, ever sinless man was Jesus God incarnate. But it's talking about in the concept here of a a legal innocence. Do you remember we saw this not long ago in John chapter 9 when we were looking at John 9? Do you remember that time when the disciples encounter this blind man in John chapter 9? They meet the man, they come back to Jesus, and they posit this question to Jesus. They say, Jesus, who was at fault here, this blind man or his parents and their sin that caused his blindness? You see what their disciples are thinking? They equate that the reason that this blind man is suffering is because either he sinned and blew it or his parents sinned and blew it. God's punishing somebody because they sinned. And gee, I mean, I would have to imagine Jesus laughing, going, McFly, come on, boneheads. Neither. The answer is neither. The reason for the suffering of this blind man had nothing to do with him and his sin or nothing to do with his parents and their sins, but it has everything to do with the unfathomable mystery of the purposes of Almighty God and that through this man's suffering, God is going to be glorified and God's going to use this man for the glory and the blessing of the church. That's basically Jesus' answer, and we still, to this day, remember this blind man in John 9, who, John 9, who we would have otherwise never remembered. You see, the fancy term for this, what I think we often default to, is called retribution theology. It's a fancy term. Retribution theology. Boil it down to this. I screw up, I sin, equals God punishes me. Okay? What's the flip side of that? I am good, I do good, equals God, what? Blesses me. I remember, clearly, it was back in the press, and I had just been married, it was like 2000, I was going on a youth retreat, and I was running late, and I had to be at the church to meet the parents and get the van and go to this retreat. And so I was driving to the church, and I uh, I remember earlier in the day, I think I had said a cuss word because I had, like, mashed my finger in the drawer or something. And I just, you know, got angry, said a cuss word. Didn't think anything of it. Didn't mean to, you know. I mean, it was just it. It was a half a second thing. On the way to the church, running late, I get a flat tire. And I think, yeah, I deserve this flat tire because I cussed. Ever have that happen to you? You think, well, the reason this is happening is because of something I said or something I thought or something I did. That's called retribution theology. Folks, it's wrong. Don't think like that. The enemy would love for you to think like that, but you know, retribution theology, if you boil it down, it's really more like what Hindus or Buddhist folks would believe, that I'm going to get a lousy reincarnation in life because I had a lousy life in the past. Does that make sense? What I put in in the universe is what I get out. It's kind of what they believe. You see, yeah, yeah, there are sometimes there are consequences for our sin. But I didn't get a flat tire because I said a cuss word. I got a flat tire because I ran over a screw and it was sticking in my car tire. And I changed it, you know, I'm all messy and I'm like, hey, parents, time to go on this retreat. You know, I had a flat tire. Yeah, sometimes there are consequences when you sin. There are consequences when you blow it. But the overarching track with me, look at me. The overarching theology of the universe is not retribution theology. If you understand the God of the Bible, it's not that. Job here, he's pleading his innocence in Job. 
we'll see that certainly as we get into Job, but he's going to plead his innocence. And the author of the book of Job, and more especially in the, in the, in the, in the words of Job, of God himself, uh, Job's plea has justification and merit. But what, is, what does God say about Job? God says that he's a godly man, doesn't he? But he's not punished because of maybe he blew it or he said a cuss word or something like that. What happened? So one day, Job's, you know, minding his own business, having a good day. One of the boys or one of the boys and some of the family members were getting together. They're having a birthday party or something like that. The family's gathered there. They're having a party. They're having fun. They were enjoying themselves. I think it even says they were drinking wine. Don't be that person who says, aha, God brought judgment upon them because they were drinking wine. Do not use that as a proof text for drinking no alcohol. That's a horrible proof text. And it's happened to me before. Don't go there. Don't be a, her- a heretic and a hypocrite. A hypocrite. God's not saying you drink wine. Ah, that's what happens. You're missing the whole point of Job. Okay? So just let's get that mental noise out. And flush it down the toilet right now. Okay? They were having fun. They were enjoying themselves. They were of age. They were being a normal family. And then out of nowhere, in this one raid after another, the Chaldeans come, the Sabaeans come, what we sometimes call Mother Nature. Job loses, in an instant, Job loses everything that he has. He loses his camels, his sheep, his donkeys, his oxen. That was Job's 401k, if you will. I mean, it was. That was his bank account. That was his investments. That was his savings account. That was his stocks and so on. They they had been wiped out in an instant. Poof, they're gone. Some of you know what, some of you here know what that means to lose investments like that, don't you? You know, when that was, what, six, seven years ago, and the banks are having all these runs, crazy things, you lost your investments. My dad lost a huge chunk of his retirement, just gone overnight. Some of you have started businesses, and you had your hopes and dreams for getting that business going and turning it over to your kids someday, and bam, the business fails, right? And then especially to lose 10 children. You know, I can't come to you this morning and say that I know anything of what that would be like to lose a child. I have no idea how Job felt here. I have no, I don't think any of us do, but I have no idea what it would be like to lose 10 children in one fell swoop. The absolute devastation of that. Reminds me of my friends, uh, Jan and Ruth Sineker, my wife, Presley and I, who's he was the very first pastor who kind of took me under his wings right when I was ordained. And he was the senior pastor of Terza Presbyterian Church where I was the youth pastor. And Job, I mean Job, Jan really ministered to me and just really encouraged me, helped me in preaching, just helped me in so many ways. Many, many years before that, Jan is now retired. His, his wife, dear wife, Ruth, has gone on to be with the Lord just, recent, just recently. But Jan and Ruth were at the first church where I was ordained into the gospel ministry. They were young. Many, many years before this, Jan and Ruth served for many years when they were probably in their late 20s, early 30s at a church in Florida. They had four lovely children. He was pastor of Chapel by the Sea Church in Melbourne Beach, Florida. Jan and his wife and their four children lived in this uh, house not very far. I don't know if it was a manse or not, but I know the house itself was very close to the church, within walking distance to the church, very close. They had all been at some church event that night. It was still light outside. It was daylight savings in the summertime. And Jan brought the two girls, and his wife Ruth brought the two youngest girls home to go to bed. And the two older kids were still at the church hanging out and having fun. Well, the two older kids decided it's time to come home. So they start walking home to the church along the side of this road. 
And sadly, a, tragically, a car veered off the road and hit Jan's two oldest kids. They were teenagers. Killed them instantly. Jan heard a commotion and went outside and saw his two bodies of his two oldest children mangled by the side of the road and, and dead. Jan and Ruth lost their two oldest children in an instant. I mean, in a flash. I mean, he had just been at church with them. And the Lord used that tragedy in a mighty way in Jan and Ruth's life. He used that in a tremendous way in their future ministry. But there was not a day when Jan and Ruth mourned over the loss of their two oldest children. Still to this day, Jan tears up every time, or Ruth teared up every time they talked about their two oldest children. So I can't come to you this morning and tell you what it's like to lose a child. Job lost all of his children in one fell swoop. He lost all of his possessions, all of his security, all of his resources, all of his bank accounts, all of his savings, all of his children literally in an instant wiped out. If we get into chapter 2 next week, we'll see that Job has not only lost everything, he's going to fall ill, he's grievously ill, desperately ill, and then on top of that, his wife comes to him in this vitriol, how can you be a Christian, Job? Curse God and die. How dare you? We've lost our 10 children, all of our resources. How dare you worship God? How can you be a Christian? How can you respond? Can you hear the vitriol in her voice? How can you respond when we've lost everything, our precious babies? We continue to read in, so we continue to read in Job after this period of silence. You know, his friends start texting him, Job, you know you had it coming, Job, didn't you? You knew you had it coming. Search yourself, Job. You see, they're texting back and forth. Search yourself, Job. Look in your past somewhere because this kind of retribution, God is just. Job, people don't have this kind of crazy stuff happening to them because there must have been something that you've done, Job. Come on, fess up. There's got to be something secret that you've not talked about to the Lord. Well, there's Job. We're going to follow him over these next few weeks. We're going to get right down into Job's heart and into his soul, into some very dark areas, perhaps some dark areas that you don't want to go. That's Job. Then we meet Satan here in chapter 1. Technically, the Satan. It's more of a title here than a name. He's the adversary, tells us. It's interesting that he doesn't appear anywhere else in the book of Job, does he? You go to the epilogue, the end of Job, he's not there. He doesn't appear anywhere in Job's friend's contributions <laughs> in all that middle section of Job. He doesn't appear in anything that Elihu has to say who shows up in chapter 32. He doesn't appear in the, uh, in the end. I mean, he doesn't appear anywhere except here at the very beginning in the prologue of the book. He appears here, and he appears only in, in name only. But what does it say here? Well, first of all, there's a connection there's a connection here. Without explaining it, without me going into the ins and the outs of this and becoming philosophical and overly technical, we can say this, that here's the connection. There's a connection between suffering and Satan that Job teaches us. There is a connection between suffering and Satan. Now listen, friends, we live in a world that is supernatural. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you know this. You probably experienced this. You go to Ephesians chapter 6. What does Paul tell us? Tell us. Who do we wrestle with in this world? 
do not wrestle, he says, with, with flesh. We don't wrestle against blood and flesh, but we wrestle against what? The principalities and powers of this world, of the rulers of the darkness of this world. First Peter tells us, Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. We need to understand that. Things happen because there is a conflict that you and I can barely see, that you and I are barely aware of, but there is, beloved, there is a conflict between God and the powers of Satan and the powers of darkness. And there is a supernatural battle taking place. I felt it this week in preparation for this. And this is our worldview as believers, as Christians. What is the Bible's worldview? Is it, oh, just things happen in life, you know, just suck it up? No. What is the Bible's world? God's word, its overview, its worldview is that this is the kind of world that you live in. There are real supernatural powers at work that you don't even see. Jesus said, what to Peter? You remember? Satan has asked for you that he may devour you, Peter. But I have, I have asked for you. I have prayed for you, Peter. I've interceded for you, Jesus says. And this brings up questions here, doesn't it? I imagine. I mean, I've, I've got questions. The more I've studied this, the more questions I've had. And, and in all honesty, if you were to approach me after this service this morning and say, Stephen, what, I, I'm probably going to have to tell you I don't know. Questions like this. Why is Satan reporting to God? Why in the world would God allow Satan even into his presence? Where did this take place? If it, in heaven? And, and would God truly be even interested in what Satan is doing? You see, I mean, this sparks all, this kind of churns up all kinds of theological questions. And I don't ultimately have the answers to all these, but believe me, I want to know them too. I do. And I won't ultimately understand them, I think, until heaven. But I, here's what I do understand. Oh, boy, this is clear. This is so clear. I understand that Satan does not have ultimate authority. He doesn't have ultimate. He must report to God. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand the ultimate philosophical aspects of that. And it is going to baffle me probably till eternity. But here's the one reward for us, that Satan is not in full control, you see need to understand that, beloved. He is not in full control. Even when he is allowed to do what he does, he is allowed to do it because God grants him the liberty to do it. Do you see that? Satan is sub-divine. He always was, is, and will be. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said, said of Satan that he is God's Satan. <laughs> I love that. He's God's Satan. God's the one who controls him. You know, we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a wonderful hymn. I love that hymn. You know my favorite, favorite verse in that hymn? I tear up every time I sing it. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his what? Doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that one word? Jesus. He trembles at that word. And at the end of history, one little word, and he's crushed for eternity. But this raises another issue, and I understand this. Like, Stephen, okay, well, that's great. But what about the explanation of evil? What about the explanation of why bad things? Wasn't that a great question? 
you know, I could give you for I'd be a millionaire for every nickel I had for every time everybody, everybody asked me that question. A lot of bad things happen. That's a, it's a great question. I think one, one, one explanation of why bad things happen, or what's the explanation of evil? Part of it is, is what C.S. Lewis talks about in his essay, The Problem of Pain. He says that we live in a universe of natural law, and we do, right? We live in a universe which something called gravity exists. And the older you get, the harder it is to overcome the effects of gravity, isn't it? <laughs> when you fall down, I mean, I'm only 48, and it's, it takes me a, a few seconds longer to get up these days. That's depressing. Gosh, you fall down and you skin your knee, that's a result of natural law and gravity. You're going to fall. If I jump off these steps, I will fall. I'll probably break my ankle. You put your hand in a fire and you recoil, right, because your nerves send the signal, ow, that's hot. That's natural law. It's a good thing. It has nothing to do with my sin. It's part of natural law. It's the way the world is. But there's more happening here than natural law, isn't there? This isn't just an act of Mother Nature. This isn't just an act of blind forces over, over which no one has any control. This isn't just, well, things happen, Job, yada, 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 que sera, sera, whatever it will be, will be, Job. Job, we just live in this world of determinism and fatalism. Just deal with it, Job. Suck it up. No, there's more here because bad things happen because of Satan. And beloved Christian, you need to be equipped with the whole armor of God if you're going to withstand him. Paul gives us that in Ephesians 6. You had better be equipped with the word of God, beloved. Because the more you love Jesus, the more you lean into Jesus, the more you love the gospel, the more he will attack you. Mark my words. The more you fall in love with Christ and you pray, the more he's going to want to distract you, the more he's going to want to dredge up those old sins the more he's going to try to distract you with lusts and enticements. You better be equipped. You had better be equipped with the word of God. You better be equipped with the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ, the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ with the, your feet, your shoes ready for the preparation of the gospel of peace if you're going to withstand Satan's schemes and his tactics. See, what this is saying to us is that we do not, we don't, don't, Try to simplify the world in this sense of dualism. Maybe you've heard that term, dualism. We don't live in a dualistic, we don't live in a dualistic world. Dualism falsely teaches that there are forces of good and there are forces of evil. And those two forces are equal and we have no idea, they're going to duke it out. We have no idea what the outcome will be. That is not true. It's the old cartoon, right? Remember the old cartoons where you got the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other? That is not true. <laughs> Back to Job. Who did this? Who did this in Job's life? In one sense, it was the forces of nature, wasn't it? A fire fell from heaven. We don't know. I mean, it could have been a hot, I don't know what they call them, but these hot winds that come through. It could have been a hurt. It could have been a bolt of lightning that hit the ground and the electricity spread and killed everything. It could have been that. It was, in a sense, a force of nature. In one respect, it was the men. It was men who did it, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who did it. In another, in another respect, it was Satan who did it. So that's all of that's true. Nature did it. Uh, man did it. Satan did it. And God did it. Folks, get that. And God did it. Who gave Satan permission to do what he did 
and he set the boundary to not touch Job. God's going to move that boundary. We'll see next week in chapter 2. But who set the boundary? Tell me. who. You say it out loud. Who? God did it. Who did it? Say it loud. God did that, folks. There's the problem, you see. Aha. There's the challenge. There's the sticking point. God is in this, folks. My Savior, Jesus, is in this. See, there's a problem of pain, isn't it? I'll tell you, it's not so much the problem of pain. It's the problem, can I say it? It's the problem of God, isn't it? I just said that, yeah. That's the problem of God, isn't it? See, that's what we're going to Does God stand the test of trial in the book of Job? Folks, that's what we're going to see. In verse 20, and then you get to verse 21, and you have one of the most beautiful and extraordinary words in all of the Bible. What does he say? The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've met hospital chaplains, and not all hospital chaplains are like this, but I have met some like this. Some hospital chaplains who I believe they belong to the Society for the Protection of the Cruelty of God. That's kind of what I would call their society that they're part of. Because they're saying, oh, beloved, don't you blame God for this. That cancer that's in your loved one, don't blame God for this. No matter what the trial, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the difficulty they have this burden, do not blame God for this. God wasn't in this. God had his hands tied. He wasn't there. And I understand what they're saying. I get it. I understand why they're saying that. That events like this, of Job's loss, a loss of this magnitude and of this severity can certainly rob you of your faith. I have, I'm sure you probably know people. I have known people who have lost their faith, who have grown angry. They've grown bitter with God for something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they have never forgiven God for it. Listen, beloved, is that you here this morning? It's okay. It's okay. Is that you? Maybe secretly this morning you're wrestling with this. And you bear this grudge against the Lord. Your, your life isn't where you had hoped it to be, right? Your family hasn't turned out like you'd hoped it to be. You, your marriage, your husband, your wife certainly isn't what you'd hoped it to be. The circumstances that you dreamed of, those little dreams that you had in your life, and you think, gosh, they're just, can I just have that for once? And all the twists and the turns that have gone through your life, and your life has not turned out as you had hoped, and you blame and you're angry with the Lord. And so you justify not reading the scriptures. Forget it. I'm not going to read your word, God. Forget it. You justify not going to church regularly. You justify not singing with any degree of enthusiasm and worship because you're bitter and you're angry and you just want to stick it to God, don't you? You see, beloved, that's, that's what this does to people. They lose faith and they ask the question, what kind of God would do something like this? And they begin to chuck their faith. See, that's how, it's, that's how it begins. If, if God is really that big, why doesn't he stop it? God why don't you prevent this? If I really believed in you, if you really are a God who does fill in the blank, why this? And what an extraordinary response Job gives. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. How would you respond? How would you respond? Honestly, I don't know how you would respond. Honestly, I don't know how I would respond. Let's just, I'll talk about me. To lose that, have that amount of loss. How would I really respond? I don't think any of us really knows. Let me ask you a different question then. How do you want to respond? How would you want to respond? I hope like Job, right? That's the right answer, like Job. You understand that those, listen, you understand that those who do not believe in the total sovereignty of God, they think Job is in the wrong here. You understand that. And listen, I want you to say to you this morning that Job was never more right in his life when he responded in the way that he did, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God. Is there any other level of explanation here? Yes, there are other levels of explanation. Nature did it, and man did it, and Satan did it, but God did it too in a way and in a manner that frees him from any taint of sin. Thomas Watson put it like this. This blew my mind. He said this, God always has a hand in the action where sin occurs. Hear that? God always has a hand in the action where sin occurs, but he never has a hand in the sin of that, of that action that occurs. That's something to think about, isn't it? <laughs> I've not read this biography. It's on my to-read list, but I found a wonderful excerpt from Jane Robertson's biography of Stonewall Jackson. And it contains a, a letter, a beautiful he includes the text of this letter, a beautiful and moving account of an experience that Stonewall Jackson went through when he was 30 years old. 30 years old, he lost his wife and his son in childbirth. It was a Sunday afternoon, October 22nd in 1854, and his wife, Stonewall Jackson's wife, Ellie, went into labor. The child was stillborn. About an hour later, she began to hemorrhage, and they could not stop the flow of blood, and she died quickly. Listen to the letter that he writes to his sister, Laura, who was not a believer. Laura was not a Christian. Stonewall Jackson writes to his sister, Laura, who was not a believer. He says, I've been called to pass through the deep waters of affliction, but all has been satisfied. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is his will that my dear wife and child should no longer abide with me. And as it is his holy will. I am perfectly reconciled to the sad bereavement, though I deeply mourn my loss. My dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day on which the child was born dead. Oh, the consolations of religion, I can will willingly submit to anything if God strengthens me. Oh, my sister, would that you could give, that you could have him for your God. Do you hear him? In all of his pain, he is reaching out to his sister and saying, Believe and trust in this God, though all nature to me is eclipsed. Yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them but love and keep his commandments. And he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good. A few weeks later, he writes to her again. She has now gone on a glorious visit through a gloomy portal. I look forward, forward with delight to the day when I shall join her. Religion is all that I desire it to be. I am reconciled to my loss and have joy in hope of a future reunion when the wicked cease from trembling 
and the weary are at rest, he says. Well, that's another response there. We see another man's response to tragedy and trial and darkness and difficulty. And beloved, I I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. And I hope that's where you want to be if such a thing should happen to us. You know, if circumstances have occurred to me, that's what what I want my response to be. And I hope that's what your response would be. The Lord gave for reasons the Lord knows in his ultimate providence, his ultimate hand that I do not understand or do not comprehend, the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. I trust him still.